This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. I am Glenda Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I am Alice Yovich from Arlington, Texas. And you are listening to a special trail riding edition of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for June 19th, episode 938. This episode is brought to you by the North American Trail Ride Conference and Trail Ride Saddles. Good morning, Horse World. Just an ordinary day. If you love to ride horses, but you'd rather ride on a trail than in an arena, I think I know a sport just for you. We're out. We're getting to the first mark. We're a little ahead of time. Expect nothing less than full-blown chaos. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here at Horses in the Morning. We appreciate you being here on this Thursday. And, of course, this is Thursday, and it's the third Thursday of the month, which means it is time for the NATRC to join us. And, of course, that means Alice. Hi, Alice. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Jen. How are you guys doing? We're doing terrific. And, you know, I wanted to say to everybody, if you missed the first uh, first shows that Alice did, you can go back to horsesinthemorning.com and just search for the NATRC, and it'll, sh- it'll show you the past episodes. You can go back and take a listen to them there. Well, after the last show, I had just managed a ride, and I've kind of been taking it easy. I um, had with a Memorial Day holiday, and my daughter and I stayed home and just kind of relaxed for week. And my husband actually went to our Indian Territory ride and volunteered as a P&R worker. Um, well, my daughter and I, who usually ride, stayed home and, and just relaxed. And then um, last weekend, we were supposed to have gone to the Arkansas Traveler um, NATRC ride, and I had truck problems the week before. And so... $1,000 worth of truck repair kind of grounded me to stay near Old Homestead. Oh, that sounds so, familiar. I mean, we've all yeah. been down that road before, haven't we? Yeah, I put it in the shop to get some stuff done so I would be safe to drive to Arkansas, thinking it would be, you know, three dollars $400, and then it turned out to be a lot more serious than I thought it was going to be. But and, you, and, you I know, got, if you're driving any distance anymore, it's going to cost you four or $500 in fuel. And so that has to be figured in. And if, you, if you're putting that into parts in the truck. Uh, right. Yeah. I felt really sad to miss it because they haven't done that ride in a few years, and it's just beautiful. And I haven't actually even gotten to go since I think it was 2008 that I got to go. And so I really wanted to go there and ride the horse I ride now on those trails. And um, there was a first-time um, vet judge. She was pulled in at the last minute because they had trouble finding one of the sanctioned vet judges, and she was a local. She's actually um, been on one of the other radio shows. She wrote a book called Horses Who Eat Potatoes. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Corey Key was the, ended up being the vet judge for that ride, and everybody said it was like she'd been doing it forever. They said she did a really great job. And, and I stayed here and went back to Athens where I put on my competition a few weeks ago with my management team. And we all just, we rode and ate, rode some more and ate more. And 
you know, generally kick back and relax. It was it was fun. You know, it doesn't always have to be about the competition, does it? Those days are as no. much fun as any other day. Uh, yeah, it was it was cool because one of the um, folks that's been coming to ride, he's a, a new rider, and um, he had, had last time he'd ridden, it hadn't gone so well, and it was really fun to see how much improvement he made um, from last August when he got brushed off by a branch to now <laughs> he even can't and did well. So it was cool to see how much he improved. Well, that's terrific. And before we go on chatting here, I wanted to mention that we have some uh, great guests coming up on today's show. And today's show's all about saddle fit. We have John Knoll, who is a saddle fitter, coming on to talk a little bit about saddle fit. You know, we talked about it from the English side, but we've never really ever talked about it from the Western or trail side. So I'm looking forward to that. And then later on in the show, we have Michelle Smith of Trailwise Saddles continuing the conversation on saddle fit, specifically as it relates to to trail riding and, and getting a good fit. And I think that's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of times I think people think that saddle fit is only for competitors, that, you you know, you don't have to really wear, you just throw the saddle on and go. But that's not true. It's probably even more important for trail riders because trail riders tend to stay in the saddle longer. I would agree with that. I know my background was dressage before I became a trail rider and my saddle probably didn't fit that well, but I probably didn't spend more than 45 minutes or an hour, maybe an hour and a half at a time in the saddle. And it became pretty obvious pretty fast when you're dealing with terrain that it was so much more important. Well, Alice, I know that one of the topics you wanted to chat about uh, before we get to our first guest here is camp setup and uh, how to set up a safe NATRC camp. So tell us about that. Okay. Well, one of the elements of NATRC competition is that the horsemanship judge will come and look at everybody's campsite to make sure that the horses are stabled in a similar and safe fashion. Um, and there are lots of different options that can be used for stabling your horse at an NATRC ride. This is actually something that um, in the past, some endurance riders didn't want to necessarily try NATRC or other general trail riders didn't want to try because they thought that we, we had a reputation for being too picky about our camping. Those options have really opened up and they're a lot different than they used to be. Um, you can tie your horse directly to the trailer. You can also use a high tie. Or um, you can tie on a on like an overhead picket line, either stationary or sliding, depending on how much space each camp has. And if the manager of the ride allows it, you can even bring your own portable pin now, as long as it's attached to the trailer or to a tree. Uh, we still don't allow any kind of electric pin, um, but otherwise you can tie your horse. You know any of the other any of the other ways I mentioned. Tell me now, how many? What's the most common way when you go to these rides? Are most people tying to the trailer? Or are they doing the lines? You know, wh what are they doing? The portable pens? I would say that most people are not using the portable pens. Um, so I expect as we get new people who aren't used to tying to the trailer, we may see more of that. Um, I think most people are still tying either directly to the trailer or um, on a high line or a high tie. The high ties, there's several different brands. There's Right and there's Spring Tie, and there's another, I, there's several different brands of these high ties that are an arm that swing out from the trailer. And you can, um, you can tie your horse to it, and it puts the horse out of the trailer 
and they can walk a full circle and they can turn around. They can sometimes, like my horse will roll on the high tie or the high line, the high tie. He doesn't care if he's tied to the high tie to roll if he wants to. Um, and they can still reach their food, their hay and their water that may be attached to the trailer, but they're not as likely to say paw at the trailer um, or, you know, interfere or scratch up the trailer because they're just a little further away. That's what you and, need, Glenn. You need a high tie. That's what I need. And then he couldn't roll when he was tied. No, that's so he can roll when he's tied, not <clears throat> tangle himself up. <laughs> Does Scooter like to tie? Uh, or roll, rather. He piece. likes to roll when any time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so does so, my horse. <laughs> so the, the high tie, um, I think it, <clears throat> excuse me, it looks a little bit like that swingy arm thing when you go to the car wash and you need to use that scrubby brush. It has on, it's yeah. on that arm. Yeah. Okay. Now I know yeah. what a high tie is. Got it. Yeah. It kind of looks like that. And they're attached to the side of the trailer and it gives the horse, um, plenty of room to move around. One of my friends who's kind of scientifically minded actually put her horse on the high tie and measured how much space she had. And she said it was more space than a portable pen would be. Interesting. Um, um and we, we always make sure whether they're on the high tie or whether they're tied directly to the trailer or if they're on an overhead, you know, a picket line overhead, we always make sure that the buckle to the to the lead rope is no more is no longer than an inch or two off the ground. Because we want the horse to be able to lay down or to roll if they really want to, but we don't want them to get a leg over. So do they ever myself, get tangled up? Um sometimes, but not very often. Um, My stupid doing, pony would lay down yeah. and his legs would be under the trailer and he wouldn't be able to move. <laughs> well, some people actually have wood cutouts that they put in the wheel well of their trailer when they're camping with that their horses. That makes sense. I think that's a good idea, actually, yeah. Um, I've never done that, but, um, you know, if I'd have, I mean, I just, that's never been a problem that I've had with my horses as far as um, them getting their legs caught. But a lot of people like to put these wooden cutouts cover up all the empty spaces. Um, but you make sure that, like, you don't want the buckle to drag the ground. You want it to be a couple inches off the ground so that they can still reach their food and water, but they could lay down if they wanted to. Um, the other thing, you know, you want to make sure that your bucket is secured if it's a bucket with a handle because you don't want their water, you know, if, if the bucket's on the ground, you don't want them to be able to put a leg through the bucket, you know, through the bucket handle. If you're using a larger tub of water like a muck bucket or something we like to see the handles duct taped or cut off so that a horse couldn't put their foot between under that rope you know between the rope and the bucket on a big muck bucket um, but if if that's cut off you don't have to worry about us securing it necessarily um, and then you know we always make sure that if we have a hay, if we're feeding hay in a hay net that it's tied up high enough that they couldn't paw at the hay and get a foot into the hay net. That makes sense. And we also like to leave salt out for the horses in case they, you know, want to have salt after they've been on the trail all day. Now, do you, so if you have a problem in camp with the horses, what's the most common problem that you see? Um, sometimes a horse will lay down and get tangled. It doesn't happen very often. Um, but it's always important to have a knife handy. So if you had to cut your horse loose, you could. But 
honestly, our horses are so used to doing this that um, they've pretty much sorted out what to do with their ropes. I thought the answer would have been loose horses because that's something we see at shows all the time. <laughs> that's oh, why, that's we, why they don't allow electric fence. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We really don't have too much trouble with loose horses. I mean, there's, you know, maybe there's one or two occasionally, but it's not something that happens every ride necessarily. Or if it happens, everybody's hush hush about it and they get the horse tied back up before the whole camp goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's something we've seen at almost every event or carriage driving event we've been to is loose horses. Uh, almost everyone. See, there the difference, though, Glenn, is these horses are tired. They've been That's ridden true. for miles and miles and miles. They don't want to go anywhere. That's true. <laughs> that, is, that is true. They don't tend, you know, we actually will take them out and walk them every couple hours at the, at, at the longest because we want to keep them moving after they get back to camp because if you just tie them back up, they're not going to move around a whole lot and they might stock up or, right. you know, get stiff. That makes sense. Well, we have our first guest ready on the line, and we're going to get him on here and uh, say hello to John. Can we, why don't you introduce him? All right. This is John Knoll. He is an independent distributor for specialized saddles in Texas and the surrounding states. He took a real interest in saddle fitting um, when he was introduced into the world of horses about 12 years ago. Um, he is a talented saddle fitting expert who came to learn about saddle fitting completely by accident. Now we'll let him tell you a little bit about how that happened. Hi, John. Hi, Alice. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks. I wanted you to tell everyone about how you came to be a saddle fitter. Well, it's kind of a funny story. About 12 years ago, I started dating a lady that had a horse, and it literally took me about 24 hours to realize if I didn't get interested in horses, I wasn't going to see a whole lot of her. So I started going with her to her horse barn, and it didn't take me long to fall in love with the whole experience. I was just mesmerized by these animals and what they can do under uh, proper leadership and care. And a few months later, she said to me, why don't you buy a horse and uh, learn to ride, and that's something we can do together. So I went out on the Internet, found a horse here in the North Texas area that I thought looked pretty good, ended up buying him. And, of course, didn't know a thing about what I was doing. And it uh, turns out that the horse had some sort of injury when he was a colt long before I ever laid eyes on him. And it turns out that his shoulders are crooked. So finding a saddle that would fit him uh, was pretty, a pretty arduous task. Uh, my first trainer was a dealer for specialized saddles, and uh, she suggested that I try one of their saddles because of the adjustability of the underside so that I could fit uh, each of his shoulders independently, and that's exactly what he needed. But uh, as I got more and more into horses, I realized just how important good saddle fit was, um, really and truly in all disciplines. Uh, what we're trying to do uh, with saddles is, is maybe obvious to a lot of people, but I don't think many people think about it, and that is we want to balance the rider's weight across the horse's back as much as possible from front to back and side to side because that's what gives the horse a good ride and in turn that's what helps the horse to give us a good ride. So I became more and more interested in saddle fit and I've studied it a lot. Um, I'm a dealer for specialized saddles down here in the southwest but uh, I work a lot with other models as well or other, other people's uh, products as well. and um, Anyway, I've, I've learned a little bit about saddle fit, and my passion is sharing it with people so they can make a decision that's good for them 
uh, and uh, gives them and their horse the best possible ride, regardless of the discipline that they're in. So why do we even need to use a saddle? If it's so hard to fit their back, why shouldn't we just ride bareback? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. I'm old enough to remember you know, going to the movies uh, on Saturday morning, the serial westerns, and being amazed at how the Indians would run up behind their horse's back and put their hands on their hips and just jump on. Um, you know, in, Indians spend a lot of time on horses. Most of us today don't get to spend that much time. And again, the whole idea behind a saddle is to balance the rider's weight as much as we possibly can. And um, that's what helps the horse give us a good ride in the most pain-free manner possible. So what are some of the elements of a good saddle fit? Well, what I like to talk about when people call me and, and say, uh, hey, I hope you can help me. I've got, uh, I don't think my saddle's fitting right. I like to talk about the, the three-dimensional elements of width, arc, and angle. Obviously, horses are three-dimensional animals, and so that's how we need to look at saddle fit. When I talk about the width, I'm talking about the width of the saddle uh, at the shoulder area. Um, <clears throat> you want it to fit firm on the horse's shoulder. You don't want it to be too wide, because if it is, it will have a tendency to fall down in the front, throwing the rider's, rider's weight towards the front. Neither do you want it to be too tight. I see a lot of cases where the saddle is too tight in the front, and that really inhibits the horse's shoulder movement, and that's especially true if the rider has a gated horse because gated horses have much bigger shoulder movements usually than non-gated horses. Uh, the arc uh, that I tell people about is actually the curve of the horse's back from front to back. And um, that's very, very important because if the arc of your saddle does not match pretty closely the arc of the horse's back, you get into a condition called bridging, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and that's really one of the worst saddle fit problems. Then the angle is uh, the angle that the horse's loins fall off from the spine, uh, or the horse's back falls off from the spine in the loin area. And it's important to have enough um, um, area to support the rider's weight in the loin area. So again, what we're trying to do is to balance that weight. And all saddles have these three dimensions of width, arc, and angle. And all three of those need to be considered when you're thinking about purchasing a saddle and making sure um, that uh, it does follow the contour of the horse's back as much as possible and uh, that's what's going to give the horse a good ride. So um, what are some of the most common problems that you see in getting a saddle to fit? Well, the most common problem I run into all the time is bridging, and uh, I mentioned that just a minute ago. Uh, bridging is where the saddle does not make contact with the horse's back directly under the rider's white. So if you think about that in just a minute, if you've got a saddle that's bridging, what that means is that when the rider climbs into the saddle and, and settles in, all of that weight is going to come down at one or more of the four points, two points in the loin, two points in the front, and the shoulder area. A lot of times people call me and say, hey, I'm seeing some white hairs in the shoulder area, um, and I know that my saddle's a little bit too tight in there, but I don't know what's causing it. 
almost always the cause is bridging because the rider's weight is tending to go forward over a period of time that creates atrophy uh, in the area where you're seeing the white hairs and uh, the, the cause is bridging. You're just not supporting the rider's weight evenly across the back of the horse. So it's very, very important to have one or more techniques to deal with bridging or if you're going out and looking for a new saddle, it's very important to have uh, find a saddle that fits the horse well in that arc area so that you don't have bridging. Uh, that's the most common problem I see. That The other thing, and, you know, uh, I, I should pause right here and say <clears throat> that in my experience, saddle fitting is much more art than it is science. Now, certainly uh, a lot of it is based on the laws of physics, but um, and, and, and that certainly applies. But the tools we have at our disposal, at least the inexpensive ones, um, are such that we really need to rely much more on experience, and that's why I call it art rather than science. Um, one of the things I've learned in the last year that I've come to believe is very important is that it's also quite necessary to get the saddle as level as possible. Uh, that's particularly true if a rider is heavyweight. You know, horses are set to carry <clears throat> most of their weight, 60 to 70% of it on their front legs. <clears throat> and if we as riders have saddles that are a little bit downhill, that's going to force our weight towards the front, and that's just going to add to the horse's burden. So I've come to believe that along with fixing the bridging and also making sure that the width and the angle are correct, it's very important to have the saddle level or maybe even just a little bit uphill so that when the rider gets his weight, his or her weight in the saddle, and it settles down a little bit, it'll still be uh, in a level position. I know I've really worked on that hard with my horse uh, in the last six months, and uh, it has made a whole lot of difference getting the saddle level. So I would say the two most um, um, obvious or, the, or the, 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 the two most important things that I normally see when saddles don't fit are bridging and they're not level. We, I know you and I have worked on that some with my mare. Yes, we have, and we will continue to do that, too, I might add. <laughs> you have a horse with a poorly fitted saddle, for example, it's bridging, and you recognize this, and you get the saddle to fit properly, or you get a different saddle, so he has a proper saddle fit. Do you, and can you, can you anticipate when the horse is going to recover from the difficulties that were caused from that or is that more related to how long he had to wear that badly fitted saddle in other words can you cause him permanent damage well that's a very good question and yes you can cause permanent damage and um <clears throat> uh, there's nothing really that you can do about that when i bought my horse he had a white spot on the right behind his shoulder on the right side he still has it he will always have it uh, he does because of the atrophy of the tissues under that area. Uh, he hardly ever sweats there, which makes it really hard for me to get, get a good sweat pattern. So, yeah. And, and that's a good question too, because the earlier you can catch uh, a poor saddle fit and correct it, the less likely it is you will cause your horse any permanent damage. Now I will say this. I don't, in the five and a half odd years I've been doing this, I don't think I have ever seen a saddle fit that was so poor that it permanently affected the horse's ability to move. But that is certainly possible. And so 
my experience in the last five years is that more and more people have been paying attention to saddle fit, regardless of their discipline. And that's a very, very good trend in the equestrian world um, because we can correct a lot of behavior problems and a lot of performance problems. If not correct them totally, then we can at least go a long way towards minimizing them if we have properly fit saddles. And that, that is true whether you're on a casual trail ride on a Sunday afternoon, a 50-mile endurance ride, a two-day competitive trail ride, uh, English uh, disciplines of any kind. Um, you know, I'd even go so far as to say uh, even the barrel racers who are only uh, riding their horses 17 to 20 seconds usually will benefit from good saddle fit because that will allow the horse to move as it's uh, being asked to move. And so, yeah, the, sometimes the damage is permanent, and uh, that's why it's important to get on this early. Can you explain a little bit um, some of the basic saddle terms? Like when people are looking for saddles, mm-hmm. you know, like they'll be described as having a wide or a narrow twist or like a tree versus a treeless or, you know, even like a like, like what constitutes a wide tree versus a narrow tree or, you know, that's some of that stuff. But, well, sure. I'll be glad to take a crack at that. Um, uh, I think I'll start with this whole idea of treed versus treeless. And um, I, as everyone knows, there are uh, zealots on both sides of that fence. And um, uh, a trade saddle is usually ba- made out of ash because it is a very strong but solid and, and fairly lightweight um, wood. It's covered with fiberglass to keep the moisture out of it and everything. And then the, the leather... Uh, regardless of of what model you may select of a particular manufacturer's product, is laid upon that. Treadless saddles don't have those structures. They, I, I really don't have a whole lot of experience with them, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, the manufacturers of treadless saddles use fairly thick pieces of leather that have kind of the same impact as a tree, but they, um, you know, they're not as solid as a piece of ash uh, covered in fiberglass. Now, I'll say this. I have known people, um, I hang out a lot in the endurance world and some in the competitive trail world. And, Alice, you and I both know people that have had um, trailless saddles, and uh, they've had them for 15 or 20 years, and they've been perfectly happy with them. Um, and as as we also know, uh, there are people that get treeless saddles, and the the issue with treeless is that sometimes they will lose their form, and when they do, they have a tendency to ride right down on the horse's spine, and that's one of the worst things that can happen with a saddle is for it to sit directly on the horse's spine. Uh, that's painful, and it really um, really affects the horse quite negatively. So <clears throat> I tell people all the time in my work, though, if what you've got is working for you, by all means, with it. Um, and if it's not working for you, uh, pick up the phone, give me a call, let me see if I can help you. Uh, some of the other terms that are uh, uh, involved in saddles is the pommel is the structure that sits across the front of the saddle. It, in Western saddles, it has a horn on it. In um, uh, non-Western saddles that don't have horns on it, it's usually some form of a 
arc, uh, not quite as pronounced as the St. Louis arc, but an arc in the front, and it, it provides a place for uh, the rider to grab a hold of, whether it's a horn or not, and it helps stabilize the saddle in the front. The candle is the structure at the very back of the seat. Uh, there are a couple of different kinds, well, there are several different kinds of candles. Most popular ones are pencil rolls and Cheyenne rolls. The Cheyenne rolls have a little lip on them, and they usually are a little bit more forgiving, so if uh, one carries a lot of their weight in their hip area, I usually advise people to consider a Cheyenne roll because on most saddle molds, um, they are more forgiving and they don't pinch quite as badly as a pencil roll does. Uh, candles can be various heights. They're anywhere from three to five inches, uh, depending upon uh, what the manufacturer thinks is important. Um, you've got the skirts, fenders. I think most of those terms are fairly obvious to people. Um, one thing that people talk about is the twist or the rise, and that is the part of the saddle that sits kind of between the rider's crotch and the pommel area. Um, that's important to pay attention to if you're out looking for a new saddle because some, some models have rises that are pretty high, and uh, in certain conditions that will literally rub you in the wrong place. And that makes for a very uncomfortable ride, and if you're not comfortable you're going to get unbalanced, and it's going to make your horse uncomfortable, and those things kind of feed on each other. So when you're, if you're out shopping for a new saddle, you want to make sure uh, that the rise is comfortable to you. And there are different seat styles. Um, Specialized, for example, has two styles. One is a flatter seat we call an endurance seat, and the other is a trail seat we call a deeper seat. And those, both of those styles have their... Um, pros and cons, and you just uh, need to consider what's comfortable for you. So I know we're talking about saddle fitting here, and it's really important to get a saddle that fits your horse, but it's almost as equally important or as important to get a saddle that you're comfortable in because you wouldn't walk, want to walk down the street with a pebble underneath the ball of your foot. You wouldn't be comfortable for very long. And if you're not comfortable in the saddle, you're going to get out of balance, and the horse is going to suffer as a result. So those are some of the terms. Does that kind of cover what we need to cover? Yes, that's great. Thank you. Because I know a lot of people, when they're looking at saddles, they don't always know what they're getting into, just like reading the descriptions in a catalog or something. So. Well, you did mention the width of the tree. I will make one other comment. In Western saddles, you hear manufacturers talk about semi-full bars and full bars and uh, there's different terms like that. What people need to know is that there is no industry standard that I'm aware of anyway for those terms. So what might be a full bars to one manufacturer is a semi-full bars to the other. So if you go into a big um, <clears throat> tax supply store that's got hundreds of saddles in it, um, you, you need to be aware of that because what you walk out the door with, if you buy one there, you think might fit your horse, and when you get home, you find it's too tight or too loose. Uh, the best way to, to know, uh, obviously, regardless of what saddle model you want to try it, or buy, is to actually try it and have somebody help you make sure it's a good fit for your horse. And I wouldn't do business with anybody that would, would not allow, uh, through a demo program or a uh, you know, a 48-hour exchange period for me to take the saddle, put it on my horse, 
and feel good about the fact that it was going to fit. That makes sense. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking about the saddles and the saddle fit. It's been really, it's been really informative. I appreciate you coming on. Well, it's my great pleasure. Now, John, do you have a website? I do not have a website, but I would invite people that want to, uh, if they have a specific problem, I'm more than happy to help people. I help people all over the country. I'm working with a lady in the Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee area right now to try to help her with a saddle fit problem. And if people will just email me at jcnowell at msn.com, uh, I'll be happy to try to help. Now, if it gets to be uh, more than a few minutes, then I'll, uh, there will be a, fall, a small fee uh, to go along with my consulting. But um, I try to be reasonable with people. My rule is to treat people the way I'd want to be treated myself. So Very if folks reasonable. want to reach out, I'll be happy to try to help. Well, that was good. I'm glad uh, he was able to join us. And, and uh, he has that radio voice that uh, makes me absolutely insane and jealous. Because, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I only sounded like that. I could be, like, making uh, at least $10 more than I am now. <laughs> Jeez. I listen to guys like that, and I just dream. and go, oh, Poor Glenn. Man. He has voice envy. I do. I have voice envy. I think I have a terrible radio voice. Everybody says it's it's unique and distinctive. Well, it that's is. what you say about the girl, you know, you go out with on the first date and never see again. They're unique and distinctive. But. <laughs> well, or that they have a great personality. Yeah, exactly. Would see? you yeah. would you rather your voice was um, boring and um, unmemorable? Would was that is would that be better? No, I've never been accused of that. So there you that's go. good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, let's take a break for our song for the day. We have more about Saddle Fit coming up uh, with, with Michelle Smith of Trailwise Saddles here on the special training episode brought to you by the NATRC. Hey, did you notice how that rolls off the tongue this time and I'm not messing it up every time, Alice? Yes, I did. It's good. You've been practicing. I, I It just shows one thing. I may not have a radio voice, but I have the ability to learn. I do. <laughs> Even at my advanced age. We'll be right back after this song. Deep in the darkest canyon with ghosts at every turn I'd crossed a thousand raging rivers And swore I'd never learn The answer to a question I didn't even know Down the same dark trail You were traveling alone Two thousand miles away from home Into the western sunset You did wrong A hard way to go Down the same dark trail We were lost and found each other And not many other lovers 
before the sunrise We can see the light Holding tight to each other and The feeling is so bright But the lightning and the thunder as they are Confusion clouds the vision of our hearts We fall apart Down the same dark trail We were lost and found each other back here at Horses in the Morning. Thank you so much, and good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here. We, of course, are doing the special trail riding edition that we do with Alice from the NATRC. We do this every month, the third Thursday of every month. Of course, we have Coach Jen here with us as well. Now, tomorrow, we, Jamie, Jennifer, and I are off, and uh, Jennifer, you have prepared a special treat for everybody. Yes, everybody's favorite segment every month, of course, is really bad ads. So tomorrow's show will feature a really bad ads palooza. Nonstop, 90 minutes of really bad ads. A marathon. <laughs> yes. A marathon. It is going of really to be ads. epic. Your face will hurt from laughing. An endurance ride of really bad ads. A hundred yeah. miles. Well, actually, yes. 90 miles worth of. <laughs> Okay, have we emphasized that enough? Yeah, I think now, we, yeah, I think we beat now? a dead okay. horse. Well, our, and your guest is now wondering why the heck she agreed to be on this show when she's standing around listening to this. <laughs> why don't you introduce your next guest? All right, our next guest is Michelle Smith with Trailwise Saddles. They are the show's sponsor today. Michelle is a lifelong equestrian and designer of the Trailwise Saddle. Um, but first and foremost, she is a saddle fitter who has worked hands-on in the field of saddle fitting for the past eight years. And in several weeks, she will complete a formal certification program for saddle fitting offered by the Front Range Community College and the only one of its kind for Western Tree Saddles. 
Hi, Michelle. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Alice. Well, I was really excited that you guys were our sponsors today. Um, but I have a question for you about the certification program that you're going to be doing. That was really fascinated when you told me about that. It sounded really exciting. Yep, I think um, it's going to be a great program. It's one of the first of its kind, and it's something that I helped to spearhead in conjunction with um, one of the instructors here at Front Range Community College in Westminster, Colorado. And what is so it? How, Tell oh, us about sorry. it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, so basically, traditionally, there's always been what's called a master certification course for English saddle. Right. Um, and I don't know exactly how long those programs have been around, but I think it's been for quite some time, um, probably a couple hundred years. Exactly. Would be my guess. Yeah, dates back to England and in, in probably the 16th or 17th century. Yeah. Right. And so um, there's never been anything like that for saddles with a Western tree. And um, therefore, there's no certification program. And a lot of times, when you have people that say they're saddle fitters, um, there's really no way to tell if they actually know what they're doing. And a lot of times English saddle fitters will apply the knowledge that they have for English saddles to Western treed saddles, which is, which is fine. It's better than nothing, but there's um, a lot of differences between Western saddles and English saddles in the tree, as you guys probably well know. And if you look at the trees, if you Google them, um, they're very, very different looking uh, and kind of interesting to look at. So I recommend people doing that just to kind of get a look at what's under their saddle. So with this certification program, um, it's a three-day intensive program. We're going to be studying um, in detail horse anatomy, um, the gates of the horse, um, we're going to be studying lameness because lameness is a huge factor in saddle fits and often um, a bad saddle fit can cause lameness or on the other hand, um, unsoundness in the horse can cause back issues that are sometimes not even related to the saddle. Um, so it's an important area to study. And then we're also going to be learning how, um, and I already know how to do this, but learning how to do wither tracings and back mappings to make sure that you select the correct tree for your Western saddle um, and just getting to know the Western saddle in great detail. Also, another thing that we're going to pay attention to is static fit versus dynamic fit, which is just a huge area of saddle fitting. And, and a lot of times people will get a saddle fit to a horse and they'll fit it with the horse just standing still and then that's it and off the saddle fitter goes, when in reality you really do need to cinch that saddle up, have the rider put his or her weight in the saddle, watch the horse move um, under saddle if possible, put your hands under there and feel how the scapula is moving, um, making sure that it's not bumping into parts of the tree, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is going to be a, a really interesting program and, and just hopefully another tool that um, we can use to educate saddle fitters, especially for the Western trees. Well, speaking about the scapula, um, one of the people, um, when I told folks I was doing a saddle fit episode, somebody asked me if you could explain how to know where to put a horse's, where to put a saddle on the horse's back. 
And is there a difference in the placement of an English saddle versus a Western saddle? Right. So ideally, there should not be, you should not have to place a Western saddle on a horse any differently than you would an English saddle. Even though the saddles are very different and they have different trees, um, number one, what you're going to find, and what I always do is I move the saddle forward and I slide it back. And if you've ever saddled a horse, I think we're all aware of that sweet spot where the saddle just kind of wants to stick in its little place. From there, what you need to do is, especially on a Western Treed saddle, because they are larger, they distribute more weight per square inch than an English saddle does, um, which is great when they fit right, but not so great when they don't fit right. But you still do want to be very aware of the scapula on the horse and making sure, because that Western Tree is a little bit bigger and there's a little bit more to it, making sure that the scapula is not bumping um, the tree when the horse is in movement. And if that is the case, then oftentimes that means um, you're going to need a different type of tree. You know, and then, and then you come to the, the part where there's horses that have longer backs and horses that have short, uh, shorter backs. Um, and I think, let's see, my trail-wide saddles, I measured them. The, the tree on those come in at about 21 and a half inches for a 15 or a 16-inch seat. And once you start getting into the larger seats, those bars will typically be a little bit longer. Um, the trees and the trail-wise saddles are made to be fairly short because most of my clientele own Arabians. Um, most of my clientele are distance riders and so um, tend to have the shorter-backed horses. Um, but that, that does play a big part, and you definitely want to make sure that the scapula is free. Um, and again, if, if it isn't, then you're, you're looking at a different type of tree. Well, I'm wondering, along with the saddle placement, um, I know that distance saddles in particular, some of the Western models still have English rigging or, you know, is there a pro or con to English versus Western rigging? Is one work better for, for trail over the other? Or, you know, is there a difference in the placement mm-hmm. of the girth or the way they pull forward or backwards? Yeah, you know, rigging is a really important part of the overall saddle Um, I would say that the style of rigging you choose is completely personal. One reason I do prefer English rigging over Western is that there's less bulk under my leg. Um, With the Western rigging, you've got a lot of that leather called the latigos that you're kind of wrapping and wrapping and wrapping, and sometimes that can start to feel a little bit bulky. Um, And then in terms of placement, placement is, is huge, and a lot of saddles will have a set rigging. So the rigging is in one spot, and there's no way you can really change it. The normal spot on the rigging is going to be a 7 Um There's a front rigging, a 7 a 3-quarter, and a center fire. Probably my favorite rigging spot and the spot that seems to work the best on the most variety of horses would be the 3-quarter um, with, with the trail-wise saddles, you do have the ability to move the rigging. We've got a lock collar and we've got cable rigging um, that is actually built into the tree of the saddle. Each tree comes with a lifetime warranty. And you can move the rigging forward or back. Um, and in addition, the cable rigging, because it is built into the mold of the tree, actually really helps 
with the saddle fit in terms of that it has a nice equal pull on the front of the saddle as well as on the back of the saddle. And then it also gives you that leeway to move your rigging a little bit. If your horse happens to have kind of a funky girth groove, or maybe you're riding a mule that needs to have more of a center fire type of um, rigging. Um, in addition to being able to move the rigging around um, on the trailwise saddles, you can also interchange them. So that becomes important if, for instance, down the road you want to sell the saddle and you just and the person that wants to buy it really can't deal with something that's rigging. So you can just quickly take that off and you can pop in your Western rigging. It takes less than five minutes, and so it's kind of nice to be able to um, go back and forth between the two. Um, depending on what you're in the mood for on any particular day. So to backtrack just a little bit, having been an English rider for the majority of my life, sometimes the Western terms for saddle parts get me a little confused. When you're speaking of rigging, you wouldn't use rigging typically on an English saddle. You would use maybe a different term. You'd probably use, I think they call that the canvas. Um, That is where on the saddle, longitudinally, front to back, that the cinch or girth, comes out of the saddle. That is what the rigging, that's the rigging you're referring to, am I right? Yeah, and, and, and I would use rigging interchangeably between English and Western. With an English saddle, you're just going to call it billet straps instead of latigos. Um, okay. So those are those, those billet straps that come out. And um, on the English saddle, some of them are kind of nice in that they have, like, for instance, I have one here in my shop right now. Um, where you can move that rigging around a little bit. And let's see, this rigging is attached up into, it looks like it's kind of up into the tree, and I would have to actually take the saddle apart to know. Well, don't do exactly that on the air. It. We wouldn't want that. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the trail-wise saddles, they are, because each of our trees are cast in a mold, and we've got four different widths and two different bar styles, um, and the the cable rigging is, is really unique, and it's it's made out of aircraft tether, and it's a continuous loop. It's cast into the tree, um, and it was originally designed for ropers. Um, in the 22 years that it's been in use, we've never had a failure of our rigging, um, and so I think it's a super a super unique and nice system, and um, I love it. I think it works really well, and it and it does give you that leeway to kind of move that rigging around where you want it. Got it. So can you tell us a little bit about each of the models that Trailwise offers and like some of the similarities and differences between them and like applications? Sure. Sure. So the first model um, that we started out with was the Pioneer Endurance model. And this is um, just a really nice endurance saddle. It's got three different, all of my trail-wise saddles have three different seat styles, um, which is a no rise, a single rise, and a double rise. And and that basically is talking about the twist and the ground seat. That's what's going to affect you as the rider when you're sitting in the saddle. That's what's going to affect your comfort level. And all of that has a lot to do with how your femur comes into your hip and how long your legs are. Um, So that that has to do with, with the rider. So the Pioneer Endurance model was the first one that we came up with. And it's just a nice little lightweight, you know, 15-pound close contact endurance saddle. It's got fenders. All of our fenders have a twist at the bottom so that the stirrup 
hangs in the correct position at all times and you're not um, fighting with it. Um, and then the second model we came up with was for Western dressage. I've got um, a really nice group of people that I work with in the Castle Rock area and Western dressage has really taken off um, in Colorado. And this is another lightweight Western saddle it has, you can either get it with the wade horn or with the traditional swells. It's very traditional looking and it's got beautifully turned fenders that are, that offer a lot of lower leg stability. All of the trailwise saddles are, um, feature a dressage type position, which is very legs under. Um, and of course all of the trailwise saddles have, um, a versatile fitting system, which is comprised of wool felted liners that Velcro into the bars of the saddle and have pockets where you can add or take away felted inserts. And then there is also a built-in piece of open-celled kind of space-age NASA type of foam, which um, provides a nice, flat, even supportive surface against the horse's back. The fit system is very, very easy to use. You can pull it in and out of the saddle. You can add or take away inserts, and it's it's pretty quick and easy to use. And I will say that I always stress that saddles, um, horses should be evaluated to make sure you get the correct tree. Because even though you can adjust the fit, and it's it's great that you can adjust the fit and accommodate weight changes and fluctuations and, and conditioning changes in your horse, the tree must follow the contour, the general contour of the horse's back, and so when you have some horses that have big high withers with, with quite a bit of rock in their back, that's that kind of dip behind the wither. That's one style of horse, you know, and then you have the other one that has hardly any withers and it's a very broad barrel shaped back and possibly a, a flat croup. Um, you also have the horse that's maybe a little bit downhill and that requires a whole different set of circumstances in, in terms of figuring out what kind of tree you're going to need in order to, handle some of those confirmational issues. Um, so after the Western Dressage Saddle, we went to the English Trail, which is, is kind of just like the Pioneer Endurance, but it, it has more of an English look, and it's for people that, that want to have that English look, and, and it has the knee rolls, which are really nice. And then our final model was um, the Aussie Light, which is great for people that love the Mickey Mouse ears, the pulleys on the front of that saddle. And it's, that's probably the saddle I ride in the most. You know, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, I have a question about that. I, I want to, we'll get back to that. Cause I know you're an endurance rider, right? I am. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second too, but um, there are, there are, I want to talk saddle pads for a minute because you see all okay. different, you see, you see all different kinds of, arrangements with saddle pads, especially in the Western world, where, you know, they'll have anything from these super thick things to to people who, you know, true saddle fitters believe, and this goes back to the time in England years ago, that if your saddle fits correctly, you shouldn't even use a saddle pad. You fox hunt too, and there's a lot of fox hunters that believe that as well. So where mm -hmm. do you fall on the saddle pad uh, situation? Okay. I love that question. Thanks for asking it. Number one, let's, let's just get something clear about the English saddles. English saddles have built into their trees a huge amount of padding. All of those panels are stuffed with wool. So they can kind of get away with saying, well, if the saddle fits correctly, you don't need as much padding. And that is absolutely true. You don't. What saddle fitters with English saddles do is they will come and they will open up those panels and they will readjust or reflock 
those panels. Um, there's a lot of leeway. You know, you can take away wool, you can add more wool, you can stuff more wool in certain parts of those panels to kind of get a better fit. And so that's kind of how they manage their saddle fitting with English saddles. Um, but of course, then in the front, if you don't have the correct width, you're, you're not going to be able to go very far with that. So just with English saddles, yes, you can probably get away with less padding because there's already so much built into the panels. Western saddles are quite different. And I do believe that, that padding is a huge part of the equation of saddle fitting. Um, and when I say that, for instance, if I have a horse that's a little bit downhill, after doing my back mapping and my wither tracings, I'm going to want to make sure, because I, I want to kind of level this saddle out a little bit, so I'm going to want to make sure that I order that tree with enough width to accommodate extra padding in the front to allow for a little bit more leveling. Um, the downhill horse is probably one of the hugest saddle fitting challenges because as they walk, physics is in play, and every time they're moving their butt, they are literally pushing the saddle into the shoulders of the horse. And there's really not a whole lot you can, you can't get around that, but you can do things to make it better. So I always try to make sure that I know what kind of padding is going to be used when I'm doing saddle fitting and when I'm helping somebody to decide on a saddle for a particular horse, because I need to factor that in to the overall saddle fit. And my favorite types of pads are the most traditional ones out there, which are the, the felted wool pads. Um, and I used to get so frustrated because I could never find anything on the market that had a contoured fit and that wasn't three inches thick because I didn't want, right, you know, so your, right. your typical Western felt pad was a big square. Yep. And, and it was, was about three inches thick. <laughs> and it was about three inches thick. So it was total overkill, especially for somebody like me that's doing endurance riding. So now I have my saddle maker make up all my own pads, which are called the Advantage Pad. And they're 100% merino grade felted wool. They're a half inch thick. Um, they've got a contoured top line, which is wonderful. There's absolutely no webbing underneath this pad that will scratch or rub on the horse's spine. It's got um, a built-in sheepskin wither protection um, piece that also helps to keep the pad in place under the saddle. And in addition, it's got billet strap holders on either side of the wear leather so that the um, rigging can go through that and that your saddle pad isn't wandering around as you're, as you're riding. Um, so saddle pads, are they're super important, way important in terms of overall saddle fit. Well, that's interesting to hear you say that. I'm, I'm glad you, you clarified that. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, about you obviously know how, how a saddle has to be comfortable for the rider because you do endurance riding, and, and that is very mm -hmm. important. Uh, yep. You know, what do you find that people complain about more, the fit for themselves or the fit for their horse? The fit for themselves. Yeah, because yeah, what I that's what I would have guessed. <laughs> most people complain about. Now, I will say that when I started doing doing endurance riding, I mean, I came from a background of, of being around horses all my life, and quite honestly, I never much thought about saddle fit, and I primarily rode English. So I think maybe there was a little bit more leeway there, and I, I got away with a little bit more without having a lot of issues. Um, when I started doing endurance riding, 
you are conditioning for hours. And when you're in your race, especially like when you're in a 50 or a 75 or a hundred mile race, you are sitting in that saddle for hours and hours and hours. And all of that pressure of the saddle and of your body weight and the different types of terrain that you're going over is hugely impacting the comfort level of your horse to the point where if your saddle fit isn't correct, if it isn't good, you're probably not going to finish your ride and your horse is very possibly not going to pass his vet check um, or may even come up lame because of poor saddle fit. So, you know, for me, um, I started to realize that I really, really had to pay attention to this and make sure that things were good so that my horse could perform successfully. And, you know, a big part of that was that we were just sitting in the saddle for so long. Whereas when you're doing, you know, some of your showing and stuff, um, or if you're just, you know, like a light recreational trail rider, sometimes you're only in your saddle for an hour, two hours, maybe. Right, right. And, and so if there is a problem, it's not really going to show up as quickly. Sometimes it hardly shows up at all if you're not riding a whole lot. Right. So, so you were um, saying, I'm sorry. You were saying no, that you spend a lot of time in the saddle. Do you prefer a softer seat or a harder seat? And like, what do most people prefer? Is there like an overall preference <laughs> for that many miles? Like, you're actually better off with less. I prefer a couch. Side? I prefer a couch, <laughs> which is why I drive. Uh, <laughs> I, I have. I have to admit, sometimes I get a little snarky about this question because, honestly, <laughs> if you want to feel like you're sitting in a lazy boy chair. Um, get a maybe, carriage. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe horseback riding isn't for you. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I am not, for some reason, I am just not that affected by seat padding. I'm just not. But I work right. with a lot of my customers that are. They're very affected by it. They feel their seat bones. And I have to tell you, it's mostly women. Um, and the way women, I guess the way women are built and the way their, their seat bones are kind of spread out a little bit wider and all that pelvic formation that we kind of briefly discussed, um, that can really affect our comfort level. I would have to say that I believe that in the long run, a moderately padded seat is the best way to go. It's, it will provide you the deepest seat and over long periods of riding, it will actually be more comfortable than a super squishy soft seat. I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't sound like it should be true, but but I have actually found that to be true, and I've talked to many um, other people that have found that, and I've talked to saddle makers that make saddles that that agree with me on that. That being said, I always say that you know if for some reason you're having an issue with your seat bones being sore, um, get a sheepskin because that <laughs> helps a lot of people. <laughs> Well, the, the website is, uh, we're running out of time here. The website is trailwisesaddles.com, trailwisesaddles.com, where you can find, and I've been on here, and I'm going to let you go with this, um, and thank you so much for, for going through all of that, but to, I got to ask you about uh, hunting with the Arapaho Hunt, which is out in Colorado at the bottom of yes. the Rockies. How yes. cool is that? That was super cool, and those people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they, I mean, talk about galloping over a hill in Dale. There is no trail, no trail. And the Arapaho Hunt Club is really traditional. So it, I did it for one season, and it was really fun to watch everybody dress up, and they do everything to the hilt. 
and they've got those hounds out there and they're trained and they're bugling and the whipper guy is doing his whipper thing and it is just, <laughs> it's super cool. I got to tell you, I'm looking at the pictures and talk about beautiful scenery. I mean, you got the Rockies in the background. I mean, and and yep. the open plains there. I mean, you, you could go for 50 miles. It's, it was pretty intense. Um, and I could tell you lots of stories. I, I approached it thinking that this would help me condition my endurance horse. And I came away from the whole thing going, actually, you need to do endurance first so that you're conditioned to do fox hunting. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer's, a, um, Jennifer's yeah. a fox hunter, and I, I'm sure she saw that in your website, too, and was going, oh, I love the fox hunt there. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to fox hunt at lightning speed, you need to go out there, man. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of I don't know these people. Like I said, they are crazy, crazy. Now, are they chasing actually chasing fox, or are they chasing something else? Coyotes. Oh, was that right? Yeah, okay. and I and I have to admit, I have to admit, I was one of the people that when the coyote <laughs> crossed the highway and got away, I was like, "Yay, go!" <laughs> I got to tell you that most fox hunters feel that way. That's not just you. Uh, yeah, yeah. You like the thrill of the chase, not necessarily the kill. So, uh, right. Yeah, and exactly. And da- out there, you don't have to do what's that, Jennifer? That you got? What's the other kind of fox hunting? A drag, you mean? Yeah, yeah. You don't have to do a drag hunt out there, do you? No, uh, no there are plenty is, of those. This is the real deal. But actually, um, I believe that they have leased a huge amount of land from a bunch of cattle guys, and so they are actually providing a service. Um, because some of the coyote populations in eastern Colorado have gotten, from what I understand, kind of out of control. Mm. So, as much as I, you know, hate to see things. You know, um, right. not exist anymore. I do understand the needs of the of the ranchers as well. When the, when the cows are calving and and stuff like that, um, it just isn't good when there's too many predators out there. And actually, coyotes are becoming a problem all across the country in certain areas. So yeah. Well, I'll yeah. tell you what. How cool is that? I just saw that on there. Was going wow. What a lucky bum you were. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, next week I am headed out to Strawberry Fields Endurance Ride, and um, our plan is to, to pioneer that ride, which means we're going to be doing three days in a row of 50s, um, my daughter and myself. My daughter's 12, and she's been riding endurance with me since she was five. Oh, wow. Um, and that, um, that's near Park City, Utah, and so that should, should be a whole bunch of fun. Well, you have a terrific time. I can't believe your daughter is doing those kinds of rides at that age. Yes, she loves it. She is uh, one of the gang. Well, I'll tell you what, when she gets to be, she's going to be fearless at 17 or 18. Well, she wants to do FEI um, for endurance, but she can't until she's 14. So she feels like that's very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) She's ready to go right now. She's got a a great sponsor, um, Tennessee Mahoney, who's an an FEI rider and doesn't live far from us. You need um, that. Actually, you need that when you, and actually, they sort of require it too when you're in junior endurance riding. So, well, cool. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> well, you guys have a great time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's trailwisesaddles.com. Thank you very much. Talk to you again soon. Well, that was fun. Yeah. That was uh, a lot of fun. She was a, know, a wealth of information. Have you ever fox hunted? No, 
I've always wanted to, though. Um, I was friends with some people who hunted when I lived in Kentucky, and I always thought I'd go out and I wasn't going to jump. I was going to yeah. do whatever it is you do the when backfield, you go around yeah. with them. Yeah. But I never got to do it. Well, Jennifer, you would say to her, uh, what would you say to anybody who hasn't fox hunted once? Uh, you need to go find yourself a beginner-friendly hunt and go out in the second field or the back field. And okay. uh, yet you will love it. It's exhilarating. It's awesome. And more and more fox hunts are wising up and they are welcoming non-members or new members in with open arms. Um, for example, one of our local fox hunts here in Florida actually has a Western field. Folks who ride Western or in trail riding tack are encouraged and welcomed. And they have a field that goes towards the back that do not jump. And that's important because then they know the way around the jumps and uh, everyone is welcome. It's more of a uh, fast and furious group trail ride than anything else in most parts of the country with a few exceptions. And an Arapaho probably is one of those. Uh, but I would encourage anyone who is curious about it to talk to the secretary of the fox hunt. They're generally very, uh, very welcoming. And if they're not, hang up on them and call the next one down the line. And, you know, you don't have to spend any more. Jennifer's right about that. And they'll forgive you. You don't have to spend $1,000 for clothing no. and everything to show up like you used to. Uh, they really do want members. So, yes. and, <laughs> and when you go as a guest, you can go your first time and just pay a guest fee and go. You yes. don't have to join. Nope. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, you would love it. You would love it, Alice. I probably would. My horse yeah. loves to canter, and he can canter all day. Um, I mean, he just he hits his stride at a nice, easy pace and... Then you we need to go to the, you need time. to go on a drag hunt then because when you hunt live quarry, about one third of the time you spend your entire day walking and standing still. Well, we do that already. So well, we there you go. See, <laughs> then you're set. Get she said her horse could do it. She said she didn't say she do could it. do it. <laughs> so, so. I, you know, I I used to jump when I was younger, and he would probably jump anything they put in front of him. But I'm not sure I would be with him when he got to the other side. <laughs> yeah. That is kind of important. And I mean, He doesn't ever yeah. refuse any of the little stuff. We jump on the trail. He loves to jump. So. In the old, old days, uh, they used to, the backfield actually, uh, and the, what, what what's the other thing called? Where the carriages used to go and watch. Those they are hilltoppers. To, hilltoppers. The hilltoppers used to go along, and, and everybody that wasn't riding would go in carriages, and they'd all stay at the tops of the hills and ride along so that they could watch. Uh, one of my favorite ones is still Myopia Hunt up there on Thanksgiving Day. They have a huge hunt, and there's hundreds of uh, people that show up to hunt. But there's also thousands of spectators that line the back roads and watch this hunt go through this hilly hunt country in northern above Boston. And it is just the coolest thing to hear the to hear the horns and to hear the hounds coming before you see them and then to see them off in the distance. It is really cool. It is really neat. That would be a lot of fun. I think I'd probably really enjoy it. That could be an obstacle on one of the NATRC courses. Uh, a bunch of hounds. Bunch of hounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember reading, I, and I when I was wanting to do this in the early nineties, and I was friends with the editor of Hoofprints back then, and she would give me her extra magazines to, or the extra Hoofprints to read. And it seemed like I read that they had an obstacle that was a herd of sheep once. But it may have just been that they had to ride through a cool. So they just had to ride through the field with all the sheep. I like that. And, <laughs> and I know we had a wild game preserve was one of the places we held a ride, and there were all kinds of exotic elk and 
deer and stuffed with spirally horns and buffalo. <laughs> stuffed or, you know, with spirally horns. horns. <laughs> I don't know what they were. I don't remember what they were called. <laughs> but, <laughs> I just remember the horses didn't want to look at them very closely. They were not no. really excited about that. No. Oh, and this weekend in Arkansas, one of my friends had a bear run across the trail right in front of her. Oh, good. That's Hi. always great. So, yeah. So they went straight across the trail. The horse didn't even take a look at the horse, just kept going. I mean, I've heard about this secondhand, but I was, I was like, I don't know. I, pigs, wild pigs are bad enough. I'm not sure I want to contend with a bear. No, that's something. That, and mm-hmm. horses tend to not like them a whole lot. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's coming up on the ride calendar? Well, um, we're kind of getting into the summer hiatus, it looks like. Um, there were supposed to have been... A couple rides in June, but unfortunately, um, one of them got canceled. But the Forest Service um, dictated some trails to the Purgatory Ride in Colorado that weren't particularly horse friendly. So oh. they decided they were going to postpone that till next year. Um, but there is a ride June 21st and 22nd at the Virginia Highlands. Um, it's in Ivanhoe, Virginia, and um, that's in Region Five. And then there are some more rides in July in Colorado, but we'll talk about them next month. All right. That sounds terrific. Thank you so much, Alice, again, for being here with us. We really appreciate it. Give out the website for the NATRC. The website for NATRC is www.natrc.org. And, of course, you can find all of our shows on our app. You just find it on, on your phone, iOS or Android. Just search for Horse Radio Network. You can find all of our shows in there. There's 10 of those. So, uh, And uh, I think it's like the last 20 episodes of each one you can find. It's easy. It's free. And that's probably one of the best ways to do it. Or you can find all the past episodes of uh, this particular monthly episode with the NATRC and all of our 930 of them at HorsesInTheMorning.com. You can also follow Horse Radio Network on Twitter at Horse Radio or go over and like us on Facebook and I think Alice will will agree that uh, at the Horses in the Morning Facebook page just search for Horses in the Morning we post lots of cool fun stuff so you'll You'll like uh, checking that out. We have lots of interaction over there, and we appreciate uh, we appreciate it if you'd like us there. Well, Alice, we'll see you again next month. 